Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Dr. Puria Maradi is a specialist plastic, reconstructive and cosmetic surgeon based in Sydney. He's one of the few plastic surgeons to offer both cosmetic surgery and microsurgery for both the breast and the face. He's a consultant plastic surgeon at Prince of Wales Hospital, the Royal Hospital for Women and Sydney Children's Hospital. Dr. Maradi is also a principal plastic surgeon at Park Clinic, where he offers a complete range of breast and facial cosmetic procedures. Dr. Maradi, thank Hi. you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Um, so just to clarify, now, is it Dr. Maradi? Is it Puria? Is it Ziggy? Um, you've got a lot of different yeah. aliases. Are you <laughs> running from someone? Like, <laughs> No, I am. Um, well, I'm Dr. Puria Maradi. Yeah. That's my name. Sure. But everyone has nicknames. And I like my basketball team used to call me Ziggy because I used to have long hair. Um, so I introduce myself to most people as Puria Maradi. And then they go, are you? Aren't you Ziggy? And then it just turns into Ziggy. Right. So, so you, your patients call you that as well, or no? <laughs> yes, some end up calling me Ziggy because someone else has called him Ziggy. So uh, it always ends up back at Ziggy. You should just and grow the hair again; it'd be a lot easier. I, I would like to, but <laughs> yeah. I know, I'm getting a bit getting a bit thin out yeah. back. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Aren't we all? I've sh- I shaved mine off prematurely, so no one notices when it eventually goes. <laughs> it just looks like it was always meant to be like that. And I'm that. just in that midway stage where I'm <laughs> going bald, and I just like a book. But yeah, no, mine's good because it's all out back, so I'm in denial that I'm going bald. So yeah. it's fine. <laughs> you just walk, make sure you just don't turn around in front of anyone. Just <laughs> This leads nicely onto a hair transplant yeah. podcast. Um, yes. We'll, exactly. we'll, we'll have to source someone. So, Ziggy, if I may call you Ziggy, um, to orientate our listeners who are now global, we've got people in India and the UK, US, all over the place. Um, tell us about your practice and who you are and your background. Mm. Okay, so um, I'm a specialist plastic surgeon based here in Sydney. My rooms are in East Sydney, which is just um, on the just outside Sydney, I guess, it's outside uh, in Darlinghurst. And we're moving to Surrey Hills, which is also another uh, inner city uh, town in Sydney. Um, my practice in the private is predominantly all cosmetic, face, breast, body. Um, however, I've got a pretty strong connection with the public hospital system. This morning we had our Prince of Wales Hospital, you know, weekly MDT meeting. So at the, at the Randwick campus is Prince of Wales, Sydney Children's Hospital and Royal Hospital for Women. And I um, operate there as well. And my subspecialty interest in the public hospital is microsurgery for the head and neck cancers and breast reconstruction. Great. Our department's a big department. Some do um, cleft, some do craniofacial, some do hands. My specialty is the microsurgical reconstruction for breast and um, head and neck. Brilliant. Oh, now, we've uh, interviewed quite a few doctors now, but can you try to very briefly explain what's involved to become a plastic surgeon? Um, obviously, you'd be a junior doctor like most doctors, but what happens from there on? Um, I guess everyone has a different path to get to where they are. So uh, the, it goes without saying you've got to go to medical medical school. Um, 
I was fortunate enough after my internship, I went to the UK and worked in the UK for three and a half years. Oh, where were you? I worked at uh, London predominantly. Yes. So uh, hospital, uh, St. Mary's Hospital. I worked at Charing Cross. That's big trauma centres. Yeah, Guy's Hospital. And also worked up in Scotland as well. So I had a makeshift basic surgical degree. So after your uh, six years of medical school, you've got one year of internship. And then there's basic surgical training, which can vary for different sort for people, mine took uh, about four years of basic surgical training. And in that time, you do three to six months of cardiothoracic, three to six months of general, three to six months of plastics. And then you finish a, a membership exam, so a basic surgical exam. Yeah. And once you complete that, then you finish basic sur- surgical training. After which you apply uh, to get onto advanced training. So whichever specialty you decide urology plastics you apply to the advanced board and it's an australia-wide process yeah um and it depends the number of people that uh can go in every year fluctuates uh depending on how many jobs there are available uh some years uh there, there might be 15 jobs in the country other years there might be 10 other years might be 25 but on average is about 15 jobs around the country yeah for registrars so am i right in saying that you could be a registrar and you could be biding your time waiting three four maybe even longer for that job to pop up. Correct. Yeah. You apply every year. Um, Currently I'm the New South Wales supervisor of training um, and I'm part of the board, uh, the selection board. And there's talk of bringing in a cap of number of times you can apply for training um, of three, three attempts. Yeah. But let's say you've done all your exams, you've done your research, you've done your references, and then you apply to get on the training program. The, you get an objective score, and of the objective score, about 40% is your referees from the jobs you've done, Mm -hmm. and then the rest is made up of your CV and then the interview, and that's all collated. And then let's say there's 15 jobs in the country. Um, We have a ratio of taking three to one three three to one ratio of, so there's 15 jobs in the country, the top 45 across the country get an interview. Yes. Because when we've d- looked at the research and the data, if you're outside that three to one ratio, the interview's not going to get you enough points to get on. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So it's a fairer system. Um, and then you go for the interview and then the top 15 apply. And then let's say you come fourth in the country, but you're in New South Wales and there's only three jobs in New South Wales. You get shipped to your Melbourne, Queensland. Yeah, wherever you need to go. Wherever you need to go. And then it's a... Survival of the fittest. Um, yeah, I guess so. And then it's a five-year program, six months uh, six months in each job. So at my hospital, people, the three registrars come from six months, then they move around. And then at the end of the five years, you sit a big fellowship exam, as do all surgical trainees for all the other disciplines. And then when you finish, um, most people, I end up doing two fellowships. I did a microsurgical fellowship in, in London, and then I did a cosmetic surgical fellowship in Stockholm. And a lot of people then go on to do a year or two years just subspecializing in something that they want to do. Yeah. Mm. So fellowship is like an elective year or, or so of whatever you want to specialize in. Correct. And uh, most of the time it's unpaid. Um for example, my Stockholm one, uh, they paid for my accommodation, but I didn't get paid to work. Yes. Whereas my London one, I was part of the NHS and I got paid. Yeah. Some hospital, some fellowships are unpaid, some are observerships. It really depends what you want to do, where you want to go. Right. Absolutely. Well, I guess I can think of worse things than being stuck in Swedish uh, in Sweden with all of the Swedish nurses. And uh, <laughs> but when, when you get there, when you get there on the thirtieth of January, and you're expecting uh, London winter, but it's just that 
15, 20 degrees colder than uh, London winter. And you don't see the sunlight. You right? don't see the sunlight, but it's a great yeah. country. So did you um, get into plastics with the view of moving into cosmetics or was it you just wanted to do plastics and that's something that sort of naturally evolved um, during the process? I think uh, the, the beautiful thing about plastic surgery is that it's such a vast specialty. So I remember when I was actually in London talking to a, a mentor that I had who was a cardiothoracic surgeon. I said, oh, if you had your time again, what would you do? And he said, plastics. And I looked at him and went, but you're doing congenital cardiac surgery. Well, why, would you, why wouldn't you want to do this? And he said, plastics is still the only specialty where you get to operate on the whole body and you mm. get to do everything. Um, so when you get into plastic surgery, you don't know which arm of it you're going to go to. You can go to cleft, craniofacial, you can do skin cancers, you can do maxillofacial, you can do cosmetic, and even cosmetic, you can break it down into breast or face. Um, and then for me, I just gravitated A, towards the microsurgical for face and breast, and it just made sense to then do the cosmetic of face and breast because I'm also doing the co reconstructive work in the face and breast. Yeah. Um, so it kind of selects you and you kind of select it. It right. just You just figure out what you're good at or what you enjoy doing mm. and then you reverse engineer it into, uh, into what you end up doing. Wow. It's a, um, it's, a long, it's a long journey. Oh, but it's a fun journey. Yeah. You know, it's not like being, in a, like being a trainee, working with different trainees, sitting exams with different people. The people that I sat exams with were still – such close friends because we went through that experience together. And then when you're in the trenches and you're working those hours, the people you work with become, you know. Like your family. I yeah, they're, they're great, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like a lot of people that we've spoken to, they're talking about their training in various parts of Australia, various parts of the world. It seems like it's a almost like an opportunity to sort of see the world during, during your training. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, your country, you know, you could be sent to rural towns, different states, yeah. um, you know, some of them you might not choose, but you get that different experience. Yeah, it's amazing. Because then when you finish training and then you get a job and set up practice, have to deal with BAS statements, workers' comp insurance and all that stuff, but you kind of miss having that every six months, they send you somewhere else and then you just go. Reboot, start again. Yeah, yeah. So... We're going to lead on to our sort of topic of the day, which is breast augmentation. Now, can you just explain what that actually is for people who, who may not know? Uh, I guess cosmetic breast augmentation is, as the name suggests, you're trying to augment the shape and size of your natural breasts. Um, and you can augment the breast in different ways. Majority of the time we use implants. However, you can augment it by doing particular lifts that can augment it and reshape it as you see fit or you can augment it with non-implant products such as the best is fat mm -hmm. um when i was in stockholm they were doing the trials on using filler the filler that you use for lips and cheeks and that using that sort of filler to augment breasts but it had such high complications so that's not really used um in modern day practice okay so if with anything lips breasts, anything, you have to augment it somehow. It's either with an implant or your own tissue. Okay. Can you just go into those different methods in a little bit more detail? So how long have implants been around and, and what is an implant? Um, I get, uh, well, implants have been around, what are we, you know, a good 50 to 70 years now and there's different generations of implants that have come through. Um, and the generational thing comes, looks at the shell of, of it and the fill of it and then with the shell, the texturing of it. Mm. So initially the implants were smooth with 
silicon filled and then they try to but they moved around a lot so that they try to put a dacron patch behind it to help it adhere to the chest wall so it didn't move as much mm-hmm. then over time they found well actually the smooth implants cause more what's called capsular contracture which is your body's reaction to any foreign body mm. if you've ever had an ingrown hair you the body creates a cyst around it because it recognizes that hair that's supposed to be outside the skin when it comes internally it goes okay well, i don't know what this is i'm going to wall this off that's yep. a capsule mm-hmm. um if you put a pacemaker in the body makes a capsule everything creates a capsule now when you have a pacemaker or a knee replacement a capsule doesn't matter as much when you're trying to have a soft breast if that capsule goes hard then it causes issues so as the generational of implants went through third generation i thought well you know what we might texture these and that may help with the vector of the of of, of the capsular contracture and that's what people have been playing with and polyurethane came in, which is the um, thicker, they feel like Velcro. The, the furry Brazilian. The furry Brazilians, yeah. <laughs> um, That's what they're called, they're called the furry Brazilians and they're still, they're still called the furry Brazilians, you know, and then they had their problems as well. It, the original polyurethane implants, when the polyurethane got absorbed, created a smooth implant. And in uh, animal studies, the, the polyurethane byproduct caused uh, uh, bladder and kidney cancer oh wow so they got taken off for many a year and then the, the brazilians brought it back and now they've got their own unique problems um which we may talk about later on with regards to alcl and that's comes back to the texturing of implants mm. yeah it's my understanding that in the early generations of breast implants they used to have issues with them rupturing and leaking yeah um which is when they moved to saline yeah so they originally were silicon but like a i guess like a honey or yeah, like yeah. a a runny sort of consistency and then they had the leaking yep. and then they went to saline and then saline was a big thing for a while and they went so is that can you just sort of walk us through yeah, that timeline a little bit um the end of the day the implant itself the shell is silicon right and then they have to fill it they've tried different things to fill it with such as oils and yep. saline and silicon and different types of silicon um saline has the benefit that if you do get a rupture then if it leaks it doesn't cause any ill health uh, the problem with saline is it's got no shape and it's yeah. got no form um, and it's pretty much good if you overfill a saline implant and just make the breast large, mm-hmm. okay? But we're in an era where shape outtrumps size, so you want shape. Now, the old silicon implants or the gels were more liquid in nature, as, as, as you mentioned. <clears throat> the problem with that is also they don't hold their shape. So mm-hmm. all, most of the round, smooth, round implants didn't have that shape. So when it moved to, and the Americans like using the word gummy bear consistency, so if you cut the implant, it has the texture of gummy bear, so it's form stable, it helped held its teardrop shaped or held its round shape a bit more. Now all implants, um, knee replacement, I say to patients, if you're 50 years old and have a knee replacement, chances are by 70 years old, you've got to wear through that knee replacement, okay? I had a friend who just lives actually down the road, he had an ACL done, 15 years later, he's torn the ACL, the knee reconstruction. So with implants, it's the same. I say to patients who generally, they're under 40 year old, they get the implant, I'm like, you will get 100% chance of revision for this implant. There's 100% chance in your lifetime, you need this revised. Now, when that happens, really comes down to a bit of luck and your preference whether you get a rupture uh, which is just natural wear and tear i I rode over i got my a a set of implants and rode over them in my car they could take the car drive (laughs) driving over it but if i could you do yeah (laughs) but if you keep doing it of course it's gonna yeah so it's it's 
the rupture can happen. Now, different implant companies have different rupture rates, but generally at six years, they quote about 2% rupture rate. Mm. Now, if it ruptures and you've got form-stable implants, as in they don't move, it doesn't, the patient doesn't even know they've got a rupture. Right. So and it doesn't reveal in like a scan or something or when they, in, in this country, uh, if you've, if when you hit the age of 50, it's recommended that you get mammograms, they get a mammogram, they go, oh, by the way, did you know you have a rupture? Mm. Because the, the, it hasn't leaked anywhere and it hasn't lost its shape. So what about for the 28 year old who's had a breast augmentation? They, they'll just find out eventually when their breast deforms or something like that. But potentially. So I guess, how will you know you've got a rupture? It's not a clinical diet. So it is a clinical diagnosis, but it's a radiological diagnosis because you can't feel a rupture. Yes, okay. you can guess, but you're you not can guess, really yeah. sure. So, um, what I say to patients is, if you're worried about anything, you don't necessarily need to go see a specialist or your specialist if you don't have access to him or her. All you need is an ultrasound. Yes, the gold standard is MRI, but that costs a lot. But you get an ultrasound. If the ultrasound shows no rupture, then you don't have a rupture. Mm-hmm. If it's ultrasound shows you possibly have a rupture and you really want to make sure, then you pay that little bit more money, get an MRI. Yeah. But back to that capsule, when you get, when and if you get a rupture, most of the times, 80% and above, that rupture is contained within that capsule. Back to that ingrown hair analogy, the body recognizes it as foreign, it creates that capsule. So that capsule also protects, protects you if you do get a rupture, majority of the time it stays within that capsule. Yeah. Am I right in saying most people would only know they had a capsule or an issue with a capsule if they get a little dimple or a contracture? Otherwise, it's sort of a normal part of having an implant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so cap, the, the, it's an arbitrary uh, grading system for capsular contracture, one, two, three, four. Okay. One is everybody gets a capsule. Then four is you've got visible distortion of the breast and it's painful. Mm. Three is visible distortion no pain and then two is kind of like you could feel it but it doesn't cause distortion yeah so when there's a lot in the media recently about people trying to you know say oh i've come to my clinic because um we can assess your breast implants for you and decide whether the you have problems with it it's kind of a bit of scaremongering because Mm -hmm. the only reason you need to change your implant is one preference Two, you've got a rupture, so you get an ultrasound. You don't need a specialist to tell you that. And three, if you've got capsular contracture, you're the best person to, to assess that. Yes, I can assess it for you, um, but if you examine your breast and they're soft, you don't have capsular contracture. You've lived with these breast implants from day zero to whatever day you, you're looking at now, and if they're hard, if they've gone hard, you've got capsular contracture. You, you, you don't need a specialist or a special unit to tell you you've got capsular contracture. Mm-hmm. You know you've got it because it's gone hard. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and I guess as well, when, when you're saying preference, um, even though the implant may not change or have a, a clinical reason for, for needing a swap out or what, what have you, your body will continue to age around that implant. Correct. So yeah. you'll lose probably your own breast tissue, your skin will lose its yeah. elasticity. And so you may, would that be another reason to get them changed other than just preferences that, hey, my implant's still good, but I'm I'm not the person I was 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think the, the body changes yeah. over the top of the implants. The implants stay pretty stagnant. You know, yeah. they do, of course, they move a little bit and they can drop uh, because there's only one way that we age, males or females, is <laughs> down <Yeah>. and out. <laughs> it's not up It's not up and in. Yeah. Um, so that, that happens naturally. So the, the breast tissue... Can, will at some stage 
pregnancy, weight loss, mm -hmm. breastfeeding, that will fluctuate. So if you've had your implants at the age of 20 and now you're 38 um, and you need the breast lift to reshape the breast, then the conversation is, well, do you want to change the implants at the same time? Yeah. If they're not causing you any ill health, you don't have a rupture, you don't have a capsular contractor, then there's no real reason to take it out just because you've hit the 15-year mark. Yeah. Um, but a lot of time people are like, I'm there anyway, I might as well get a, a, a new ones. Yeah. Can I just ask about the um, fillers for the breast? I know it's not a yeah. an accepted thing really, or certainly yeah. not in Australia, but I'm a cosmetic injector. So what were they doing and, and what f how were they doing it? By the how way, we just before we get going, we're not allowed to mention the drug name. So we'll just... No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. TGA uh, yeah, yeah. approved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah look, um, it was similar to the fillers, but they're thicker. Thicker, okay. same company, uh, same... Uh, we manufacturer. Won't talk about it, manufacturer. Yeah. Um, but the problem, is, the problem with it was, and then other clinics are using filler for the penis augmentation as well. Yes. And as you know, when you do filler, when you put a little bit in, less complications. But when you have to, and you're putting like in cheap mills or... Mil, you're talking about mills, right? Like yeah. you'd never put in a face more than three to five mills. Like that, that's even... Pen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like that would be for a revision case, someone that's already had it done in the past. Yeah. And the, the, but we're talking two to 300 cc's per wow. breath. So yeah. wow. that's a totally different. And that's all subcutaneous, i.e. under the skin. Yeah, it's uh, you try to go subglandular so under the, the breast and subcutaneous. Okay. To, to try to create that volume. And uh, what specific complications were they getting? They get really bad capsular contracture. So, okay. So those, the blobs of filler weren't incorporating because there was just too too much of it in a, in a, in a, in a unit of The space. body just recognised it as foreign and, and, and lots of scar tissue, basically. Yeah, and then we had cases that I never saw, but the people that were in, investigating it where the filler uh, migrated to the arm. Oh, my God. <clears throat> My goodness. Yeah. So I guess if you're using um, fat as yeah. opposed, so if you don't want to go down the implant path, you're using fat, which I'm guessing, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, some form of lipo like uh, liposuction to yeah like harvest that fat and then it's injected into into the breast. Um, how successful is that? And what are the complications? Do many people get it done? Is it? I get so I guess if we if we go back a little bit um so and I, I think we're going to do a breast reconstruction yeah. talk at yes. some stage and we've used fat for breast reconstruction all the time now we can take a whole your whole tummy tuck tissue transplant that through microsurgical techniques and create a breast after mastectomy and then we've used fat so fat grafting where you get fat from liposuction and then you fill it into contour defects in the, in the breast um so then, in the cosm in the cosmetic space, we've we use fat grafting all the time. In Australia, up until recently, our biggest insur uh, indemnity insurance wouldn't cover us to put fat in a breast for cosmetic reasons. Why? Because there was a theoretical and scientific concern that fat has a lot of stem cells. So. Yeah. In your world with injecting, you know, we talk about stem cells when you put fat in the face and you, you harvest the stem cells. Stem, fat has more stem cells than bone marrow. And the theory was if you're putting these stem cell-rich fat cells into breasts, then potentially in genetically susceptible women, one in 11 Australian women get aformal breast cancer and you're putting fat in, if you truly believe it's got stem cells, then maybe those stem cells are like a fertilizer for the cancer. Correct, like a fertilizer for the cancer. That's 
that's been refuted through reconstructive work um, and looking at actual breast cancer patients. So now we can use fat um, for breast augmentation. Now, we never use fat as a primary uh, tool or modality for breast augmentation. Why? Think of it like, you know, when you've got these big factories of sand and they're just dropping sand and then it creates like a pyramid no matter how much sand you drop down, it just kind of goes out to the side. There's no shape. Mm. So if you keep shoving fat in and you can't put too much fat in because it won't survive and die off and get what's called fat necrosis, you can't augment too much. So you can't put really more than 250 grams per breast of which only half survives. So you're left with 125, 150 grams, which is barely the smallest implant you put in. Right. So what we like to do with fat nowadays with the breast is put an implant in maybe not as big as we would want otherwise, and then use fat to contour around. It's called hybrid breast augmentation. So you're using hybrid techniques. You're putting the implant in, but a lot of patients that have really bony chest walls, the implant can't get central enough and you want that soft and that cleavage, mm. you get a bit of fat, not much, 25 to 50 grams, and you just kind of uh, smooth out the edges of the <coughs> implants if you're worried about a complication that, uh, people get called double bubble where you get an abnormal fold, you can get the fat to camouflage and smooth out the, that, that bottom area. It's like a contouring tool. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and that's, that's the, the beauty of fat now is you can't, like filler, you can't expect it to do too much mm. because when you expect it too much, it's like laying seeds, it's like skin grafts, fat grafts. They survive by the blood supply that you put it in. Now, if you put 10 grams of uh, fat in the breast, most of it's going to take because there's such a fertile um, uh, recipient site. But if you put 500 grams, all those fat cells are vying for a fertile donor site and they're not going to survive. And if something doesn't survive, two things happen to it. It gets absorbed. Great. But if it doesn't get absorbed, it causes what's called fat necrosis, which is like little hard lumps of fat and they're not fun to deal with either. Yeah. So could you do that potentially in multiple stages. So if you wanted to get more volume over a period of time, would it be um, advised to do a little bit, wait, see what the survival rate is, do a bit more? Would that Perfect, give you a yeah. better result than doing all in one hit or does it? Yeah, you, you've got to stage it. You can't right, put too okay. much fat in there. But the problem, herein lies the problem with, with fat. So say you want to do a straight breast augmentation with fat only. Um, and you can only put 200 cc's of fat each side, the first sitting. So you need to liposuck 400 cc's. You really need five, 600 to, to get the good cells. Now, a woman who would get any sort of augmentation result for, for 200 grams must be pretty small. Like if you've got already got a CD cup and you put in 100, if you've got a C cup and you put in 100 grams, 150 grams fat, total waste of time, right? It's only going to help if you've, got no breast tissue and you put fat. Now, the women with very little breast tissue also have very little body fat. Yeah, right. So if you're a size six or eight, it's, you, you can't, you literally cannot suck out a kilo of fat because there's no, there's no fat to, okay. to harvest. Okay. So I guess the, the takeaway message in summary is fat's great, but more as an adjunct Correct. to yeah. an implant. Yeah. Um, great for contouring, fine-tuning results, removing divots or demar like demarcation points and things like that. Correct. Rippling. Um, yeah. I guess you have to be careful, though, you don't want to puncture the implant while, you <laughs> while you're injecting yeah, yeah, yeah. the fat. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's true. 
I'm sure someone has done it, yeah. but it'd be very interesting. <laughs> Do you have to use some sort of um, sonography device to sort of make, or you're just doing it by feel and, and now you're doing it, you're putting fat. So you use fat in different different ways. Ah. So um, you're going just directly sometimes into the the subcutaneous plane, but a lot of time you're going straight into the skin. So ah. Jake, you'd know like you go, you know sometimes you go really subdermal, like almost intradermal. Yeah. Sometimes with the fat, you're going in that plane because you really want to thicken that skin particularly when people have have a risk or are you doing something for double bubble okay. yeah. sticking in deep is not going to help you got to if you want to no. plump out something out you got to go for the cheek you want to go deep but sometimes you need to go superficial just to get that skin yeah okay so uh fillers no good fat yes but in uh adjunct but gold standard is implant yeah would that be fair okay so taking this back to the basics yeah. of a you know typical breast augmentation how common is it and what happens when someone comes to you you know for the first time to to consider it what what are your sort of what's your consultation like what happens well how common is it it's probably the most common operation that i do in the private so i've got a warped sense of reality of how common it is because I see it so frequently. Um, but generally the consultation process um, goes, obviously patient sit down, I've got a rough idea. A lot of patients have already pre-emailed and there's a relationship that's already been built online. Because, you know, they go, I'm looking this, uh, these are the sort of results. And if they're realistic, they come in for the, for the consultation. Um, and they're usually there with either a partner, a mother or a friend. Um, and the before we get too breast focused, I was like, okay, let's not talk about the breast. Okay, let's find out general health. Do you smoke? What medications you're on? Are you on any blood thinners? History of blood, uh, family, uh, history of breast cancer in the family. And once you've done what all doctors should do, get, you know, detailed, focused medical history, then you start talking about what, 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 their, um, what their goals are. And then what I say to every patient is if you had a magic wand, what would, you, what would it be? That's what I ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe we went to the same medical school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if you had a magical, what would it, like, tell me. And that really sets the, um, then it, the, the, I get a good understanding of what their expectations are. So if they're, uh, I don't know, size 12 or 14 patient and she shows me a size six uh, fitness model, then you go, well, that's just not, that's just not, never going to happen. Um, but if they end up showing pictures of patients that are very similar to them, and, and every patient pretty much has a folder on their phone with screenshots of the, 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 the breasts that they like. Um, and then it just gets the ball rolling for me. And then we, I go through clinical examination. Um, I've got a 3D vector camera uh, in my office, which for those that don't know, helps simulate what the augmentation is going to look like on the patient. Mm. Um, and it's good, but I use it less and less these days because I don't think it's accurate. Okay. Um, and I tell them that. I say, look, I've paid $60,000 for this camera and it's supposed to simulate what you look like, but it just isn't as accurate as, uh, as it thinks it is. So I use it less and less. Would that be in terms of shape or size or both? Both. Shape, size, both. Okay. Um, because I tried to do a study on it and then when I was analyzing all the data on the numbers, all the volumes were t totally incorrect. Right. Um, and that's a project that once we've got a bit more time, I'll write that up. Um, but then when we come and sit down, we have their photo on the, on the screen and I go, okay, this is what you look like. These are the implants that I recommend. 
and we'll go through how I pick an implant. And then uh, I'll just get my gallery. You know, there's nothing better than uh, a gallery and go, okay, here are all these, you know, however many patients I have, I've had consent and put on the gallery. Let's find someone that looks like you, that person. They've had a similar implant. That's kind of what you're going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important to give them some idea of a real life end product rather than just this concept in their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think um, what you start with is a big factor in what you're going to look like at the end, like what the canvas, oh, I mean, 100%. sorry to use like a, a crude terminology, but yeah. like the canvas of like, if someone's got a, a good canvas to start with or a tight yeah. canvas, they're going to get a different result to someone that's got like maybe that's had kids or, or what have you. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, um, that, that that's, that is the most important. So people go, oh, I want teardrop. I want round. I'm like, you know what? It really doesn't matter if you go teardrop or round, because if you've got a good shape already, and I use this in analogy. I go, if you've got a really good shape, I could put my shoe inside <laughs> and it'll look good because yeah. you've got good shape. We're just trying to create volume, right? Yeah. So when people are like, I want the teardrop look or the round look, I'm like, there's no such thing as a teardrop look or a round look because um, you could put a teardrop implant on a lady um, and she could look round, for example. If, if you're really tight and you're like an A cup, um, and you put a high-profile teardrop in, I, I've got them on my gallery and I show the patients, I go, what do you think is round? And I go, no, this is a teardrop implant because that teardrop looks like a round in that patient because she's an empty canvas. Yeah. And then you can show a lady that comes in who's a, you know, got bigger, like, like a C to a D, a little bit saggy to start with, and you put a round implant and they look like a teardrop breast because... They have that natural teardrop, yeah. natural shape. Mm. So when patients... And I say, look, it's a it's a pure mathematics game, right? So if you've got a chest, if you're a breast that's 100 grams, so if I said, look, if I went and did a mastectomy on you today and cut out all your breast tissue, you've got 100 grams. If I put a 300 gram implant in you, that means three quarters of your breast is implant. So you're always going to get that nice fake, not fake, but nice upper pole look. Now, if I get that same 300 gram implant and put it in a lady whose mastectomy would weigh 600 grams, same implant, and even if they're the same height and the chest walls are the same, I said, look, now that lady, the 300 implant and 600, only one third of her breast is implant. So it's always going to look natural right. because most of that breast is natural tissue. So there's less of the push or the contours of the implant. So the hard conversation is ladies that come in with C slash D, the needle reduction and lift, and they, they show photos of someone that's pretty much had nothing and had an implant, I'm like, you cannot get that fake look because you've got so much breast tissue covering, covering your implant. Mm. It's a numbers game. What, what's the current trend for what people are asking for? I mean, presumably, you know, 80s, it was big and bold. Yeah. And now you're saying it's more of a natural aesthetic. Uh, uh, look, <laughs> I wish I knew what depends the trend was. Depends on part of Australia. <laughs> yeah, no, d- d- no, I think... I, I said to patients, volume is important, but shape trumps yeah. size any day of the week. So if you need a lift, because a lot of the time people need the lift to create the shape and then they need implant to create the volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- I'd say in my practice, I'd get probably half that want the fake look, half that want the natural look. It's just so yeah. down the middle. It's like fashion. Yeah, yeah. Can you, I mean, 
I know what you mean, but can you define what you mean by the fake look for people li- listening to this? The, the fake the fake look is having the round appearance in the upper pole. So where they wear a bra, you see that upper pole cleavage. Okay. Yeah. Which is obviously less natural. You know, yeah. No one's born, well, presumably you're not born with that. No, no. But the the the, 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 the problem becomes when they want to look fake but natural, but... What I want to look mean? fake, but not fake, fake. <laughs> yeah, I, I wh- write in my notes, patient wants to look fake, but not fake, fake. Wh- where do you think that's come from? Like, well, what's driving that? Um, I think what's driving that, I mean, it, I mean, it's people are empowered these days um, and the empowerment gives you access to all sorts of things. So back, back in the day, no one used to talk about it, one, but also no one had access to it. So the only people you would see are people in magazines who are unrealistic people and you accepted that they Photoshopped and you – didn't know what it, you didn't have access to that. Yeah. But nowadays through social media and whatever avenues you use, people have access to other people's selfies and other people, all these images that by definition aren't altered, aren't changed by, yeah, people use, fil- uh, you know, um, filters and filters and that. But essentially it's another human being that has a story and a history and you, they see them go, okay, I can relate to that person. That's the sort of look that I, that I like, that I, that I desire. Yeah. What concerns me when patients come in and go, this is the look I want, and they show an Insta model or someone at the beach with a photo taken from up here, everybody looks good from up there. Yeah. You know? And I say to patients, the goal of breast augmentation is to look good naked because everybody looks good in a bra because a bra, hi- a bra and swimmers hides all sins. So try to, try to bring me photos of you know, medical photos of before and afters, same lighting, same background, hands down, because that's the easiest way to visualise what you're going to look like. Because if you get someone in a bra, this everything is so looks interesting. Good. You know, in, in the world of injecting, or we've yeah. spoken to other doctors about their specialty, photography, and and getting people's expectations right from that selfie or social media angle can be such a blurry yeah. world. Um, you know, if you've got poor lighting or a funny angle, you yeah. can you can make people look terrible or great. Yeah. Um, but it's the same breast. Yeah, yeah, it is. And this is the problem that we face right now is that on our websites, um, every photo has to be same lighting, same before or afters. And you can't have sensationalized, sexualized photos, right? But on Insta, if you put nudity, social media will take it down. Fine, that's easy. But if you cover it up with a little smiley face... On the nipple. On the nipple, then it's totally fine. Um, but if you're before... If you've got a before that's, you know... And I do it, I've got an emoji on the, on the nipple, but then your after is one of them in a bikini, um, that's not the same before and after. Correct. So you have to divide it and go, okay, this is the after, but the before you do it is another post to try to keep it in, t- in line with the APRA guidelines for... Correct. The before and afters have to be consistent, otherwise yeah. you could be fined or yeah. or at least complained against. Yeah. Um, seems like... Would you, do you think that social media is a good thing or a bad thing for your practice or cosmetic medicine in general? Oh, I think it's or a double-edged sword. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. It's a totally double-edged sword. So with all the good things that come with it, such as exposure, empowerment of patients, um, are the bad things, unrealistic goals, people can you know slander you without you even knowing yeah. without you have never seen Even-word warriors yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um but you know you, you got to take the good with the bad and generally i mean i don't know what you guys follow on your personal insta pages but they're the things that i want to see so for me it'd be like 
sports stuff, watch stuff. Um, and now I just want to see that content. So it gives you an access to all that content. I barely watch sports news anymore because I get all my results through my Insta feeding. Okay. Juventus beat um, Atletico this morning, 3-2. Yeah. I did, oh, forgot to watch it on TV. I can watch it on my social media stream. So mm. yeah. It's and patients are like that. If they follow a particular injector or follow a particular surgeon, then they have access to that person yeah. when when they need it. One of the um, other specialists that we've spoken to is uh, well, not a specialist, a clinical psychologist. Yeah. That we, we've spoken to, and I think you know her as well. Yeah. Um, you know, she's got some interesting um, ideas around social media, and we really enjoyed that conversation with her. But it seems that the social media aspect could potentially be causing um, or manifesting a lot of body dysmorphia uh, yeah, issues for patients, um, whether it be them having a distorted view of themselves um, or what's potentially achievable. Do you encounter much of that and how, how do you deal with it when you do come across it? Yeah, I think I think that's very that, – I mean, it, that's so true. That's mm. 100% true because back in the day, if we want to take a photo of our – no one took selfies because <laughs> then you have to take it, then give it to the chemist and then they'd have to de- develop the films and then you like – yeah. It you, is what it is. It is You're what it is. Go through that process yeah, a yeah. times. Yeah, but now you have access to it. So for facial plastic surgery, it is a big problem because as as Jake said, noses can look different in so many different angles. Um so body dysmorphic, I think it's it's a tough one because the ones that are blatantly body dysmorphic are very easy to pick. Like mm. no issues. Body dysmorphic, you you just know they are. And the ones that aren't aren't. But then it's all the ones in the middle that aren't you know, DSM classified as body dysmorphic, but they're the ones that you don't pick and then you operate on and then they cause the problems. And a lot of the time they might not have a good outcome, which is not body dysmorphic. They actually don't have a a perfect outcome, but it's their reaction to that not perfect outcome. Um, That causes grief for both people. And the patient is kind of justifiably annoyed because they didn't get the, result that they wanted. Now the surgeon's annoyed because he or she has done their best, tried to get it, but as anything we do in life, there's there's a, the risks and there are complica- the complications with it. Um, so it's knowing which one of those patients can turn. Yeah. And that's something you probably don't get a lot of training on. No one prepares you for that no. when, you, when you're studying. Well, so you come out with all these amazing skills and, and experiences to physically do the job. But in terms of that patient selection and knowing all the pitfalls to avoid, it must be very challenging and, and difficult to get but, to but it's begin like with. A, get, get, it's like a street MBA. Like you, you just kind of <laughs> figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. You figure it out pretty quickly, actually. Yeah. Um, so you've done your consultation with your client and you've agreed on an implant and a size, etc. Do you have a cooling off period or, or how does it work? Um well, no, everyone has a cooling off period, so there has to be a, for all um, non-MBS, non-Medicare item numbers, there, there has to be a seven-day cooling off period, three months for uh, minors. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, and, and it's unrealistic for people to sure you have to turn a tap on the it, day it, and yeah, have your breast done. Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't happen that way. So the cooling off period, I mean, it, it, it's fine. Everyone has a cooling off period. Um, back to the selection of implant, um, selecting of implants. The vector that I mentioned, I use less and less. I, I'm using less and less external sizes as well because, yet again, they're not accurate too mm. because I've got them all in my room and you put them on and everyone looks the same, you know, mm. and particularly if a patient comes in with a padded bra, everything in a padded bra looks the same. So how I 
what I say to patients is, okay, think of it like building a house. If you've got a house, when, what do you need to build a house? Parcel of land. If you've got a 200 square parcel of land, you can't put a 400 square house. Not but if you had a 400 parcel of land, it'd be so silly to put a 200 house on there. So the parcel land's your chest wall. So we've got your chest wall to work with. I measure it up and go, this is your chest wall. So then we decide whether we want to teardrop around that's fine. Then the most important thing, but even more important than T-drop around is the projection of the implant. And the projection is how far it projects out from the body. So using the house analogy, I say to patients, so if you've got a 200 parcel of land, you want a four in a house, two stories or three stories. So it's not how high it goes, it's about how far out from the chest wall it goes. Yeah. The further out, the more cleavage. Is that measured in centimeters? It's measured, different companies use different terminology. Um, but e roughly speaking, each implant, so you go moderate, moderate plus, high, ultra high. So four level, four, one, three, two, three, four. And each progression for the same width and height goes up about nine to 11 millimeters. Right, okay. Yeah. So from a moderate to moderate plus, say a centimeter extra projection, then another centimeter on top of that. Mm. And then, so like I said, that, that's how you choose the implant. So very, and then that kind of really makes it easy. So you never use ultra high profile except for revision cases. So you're left with moderate, moderate plus or high. You've got your width of the chest wall. To me, the width is critical because you want cleavage. And if you go a narrow implant, you've got a big gap. You want to go as wide as possible. So you get side boob, cleavage, and then you can create volume by going outwards. Yeah. So don't worry about the volume. Worry about the dimensions of your implant and the projection. So if someone goes, I want the most subtle, I don't want anyone to know, easy, moderate. Someone goes, oh, you know, I've, I'm going this far, but I just, I don't want to look too fake, but I want a moderate plus. I want the fake look, high profile. So yeah. selecting of an implant actually isn't that difficult. Yeah. Mm. And I guess it's important for prospective patients out there to understand that just because your friend looks great with 400cc implants, yeah. you might not, or you're you might appear bigger even though you've got a smaller implant. If you've got a smaller chest wall, I guess a smaller implant is going to look bigger. Correct, yeah, yeah. So I've got a photo on my website of, uh, and I put it up for patients and I show them and I go, what size implant do you think? And everyone's like 400, 500. It's 225. Mm -hmm. It's 225, but it's on a short lady short chest wall. Her chest wall is only like 10 centimetres, you know. Right. I couldn't have put a 400, like it wouldn't have even fit. Yeah. Someone needs to develop an app or a calculator where you just plug all this stuff in and you get an answer. You get an answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what I have, I've talked to the implant companies and they've kind of gone cold on is it, there should be an <coughs> implant catalogue. Yeah. So where you could go, I want to look at um, Mentor or whatever implant company you look at, I want to look at 330 cc's mm. and then – surgeons in you know send photos of all of their patients that have had that implant mm. and then so as a patient be very fantastic for a patient because they can go i've seen a surgeon he or she's recommended that i get a teardrop implant 330 cc gee i wonder what that's looked like on other patients so they go and that you could see exactly 300 of them not just exact five mm. yeah um, i've talked to the implant companies um and also talked to some of the forums about doing it but um Mm. Too hard basket. To reach out to your, your good colleagues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the other things, other than, so we've got obviously uh, implant selection, um, over or under the muscle. And then I hear things like dual plane where they do some under, some over. What's what's that all about? Oh, a lot of it is just gimmicky as well. Right, so okay. I say to a patient, there's two choices. You're either above the muscle or below the muscle. Right. Okay. Now, when you're above the muscle, you can be subglandular 
or subfascial. So by that means subglandular is you go under between the gland and the muscle. Or you could be subfascial where you take the fascia, which is the fibrous layer above the muscle, and go in between that, which is still under the gland anyway. Um, or you go under the muscle. Now, when you go under the muscle, then there's different classifications of under the muscle. And that's where dual plane comes involved. And dual plane essentially means dual plane one, two, three, four is how much you divide that muscle from the gland. So dual plane one is where you just don't divide the gland off the muscle together. And no one really should be getting a dual plane one because you get a lot of animation that way. So you have to disconnect the muscle from the breast a little bit so that you don't get that animation deformity. So then depending how much you disconnect the breast from the muscle is the degree of dual planing that right. you do. So it's still under the muscle. Now, right. the more you disconnect the breast from the muscle, the more gland is going to be over the bottom half of the implant and more muscle is going to be on the top half. So dual plane means the top of the implant uh, is covered by muscle and the bottom of the implant is covered by the breast. When do you do one or the other? Majority of the time you go under the muscle or dual plane. Why? It's more natural. Um, and the, you... More natural as in you see less contour of, a, yeah, you of see, an implant. Exactly. Yeah. And if you're super thin, so we used to have this arbitrary number where if you can pinch up up in the upper chest wall two centimetres, then you can go above the muscle because you've got the camouflaging effect of the soft tissue. Um, and you can do that. And I've done subglandules. If you want to look fake, you go above the, above the muscle because you don't have the muscle camouflaging that step. Right. Problem with above the muscle is you increase chance of rippling where you see the contours of the implant. Yeah. If they lose weight, then they'll see it. If you get capsular contracture, then you get that posh spice sort of appearance. And I think above the muscle over time ages the breast more. Over the muscle? Because I guess there's no muscle holding the implant in. It's just skin. Yeah. Is that right? So it's more mobile and it can flop in the armpit in worse circumstances. <laughs> yeah, yeah it can do it. But also they've done MRI studies where they've looked at implants below the muscle and above the muscle and below the muscle the when they've looked at the mri of the breast there's been no atrophy or um thinning of the breast tissue when you go above over time you can thin the, the breast tissue mm. so where possible you try to go below um but below has more pain and then you've got more chance of animation yes because it's under the muscle and every time they contract it can potentially move is there a difference in recovery time for a yeah. patient, yeah, above the muscle, they're like they don't even know they've had an operation, right? Okay. Like because you haven't divided, because the the pec muscle is a big broad muscle. You've got the head up here called the clavicular head, but the sternal head attaches to the ribs and sternum, and you've got to disconnect it down here with the implant in, and then divide a, lo a lot of the origin up to the the sternum to get the right. cleavage. So they have a bit more pain, especially right. nowadays. Women do a lot more like heavy power sort of power lifting. That muscle is strong. It's only just going to contract more mm. okay what um happens on the day of a breast augmentation procedure like how, how long is the operation what prep does a patient need to do and when can they go home um i say to patients it's a four-hour turnaround mm -hmm. okay so usually turn up an, an hour before surgery the surgery takes about an hour and then plan for about two hours for you to wake up and for the post-op um, recovery team to be happy to send you home Okay, so it's pretty sort of half a day you're in and you're out with new boobs. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's day, yeah, day surgery. You, you don't, I don't recommend patients stay overnight in a hospital because then it becomes a financial thing. You're more than welcome to stay overnight, uh, but it, all the hospitals charge 
a lot. A thousand dollars just to stay the night, which you don't really need. It's and not. most people are comfortable in their bed with their own food and mum looking after them or their partner. Correct. I guess. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, what are the differences between um, sort of, uh, you know, the scars and you can do it in the armpit, or you can yeah. do a tiny scar, bigger yeah. scar? Like, what, what's your sort of well, the, take on that? The doctor, was it Dr. 902? I know did it through the belly button and everyone was talking yeah. about getting their boobs done through their belly button. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Explain it. I was a bit. <laughs> so confused. essentially it's all about access and creating the pocket. The pocket is, we just talked about above the muscle, below the muscle. And the pocket you want to... You want to get the best result, you want to create the pocket that's appropriate for the implant that you select. Now, the the best for access is the uh, incision in the inframammary fold. Under the boob. Under the breast. You don't, you don't make it where the fold is now. You make it where you anticipate the fold will be afterwards. Okay. Okay. And then depending on what size implants you put in and what style of implants, it can vary between three and a half to five centimeters. Okay. And that gets you the best access to the subpectral plane yeah. or the dual plane, dual pocket plane to put the silicon implants in. Now, if you want to get an implant in through the armpit, or through the belly button, that's fine, but you can't have silicon implants because you can't put a silicon implant through a two centimeter hole. So yeah. a lot of all that, um, the trans auxiliary and trans umbilical is America based where they do lots of saline implants. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. So they put a deflated saline implant, literally shove it in to the pocket in, inside, and then they inflate it to the size that they want. And then go, okay, that looks good. Take it out. With, right. So it's not a very scientific way, it's just making the bed. That's why breast augmentation is a different word, different operation to me than breast enlargement. Because you're not enlarging the breast, you want to augment it and make right. it look nice. Now, through the armpit, it's not too bad, but it's good to go above the muscle through the armpit. But it is near impossible to go do a proper dual plane from the armpit. Yeah. But then also get it. In t and set the implant up properly because everybody's pec major, the, the pec major has different origins and insertions. So even on the same patient, the origin of some patients, the pec major is higher, sometimes lower. The left side's always a little bit um, higher, the origin. So it's really hard to get access from there to down there. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I guess if you're putting it through the um, belly button, you'd have all those, I don't know, you'd have all this, would you have trauma to your stomach going, getting it? Oh, you just go in the, you're going in the, right. uh, you go in the um, subcutaneous plane. Um, but occasionally I, when I need to do a lift, I don't use the crease incision because I use the incisions that I need to use for my lift, which is usually the, the vertical called the lollipop scar where you have to lift the nipple up and then you have to make the, the cut. So I don't make the, that incision for those patients, I go through the vertical access. And people are doing these incisions in all these unusual places to hide a scar. Is that why they'd be doing it from a patient perspective? I think, yeah, from the patient perspective, it's all about trying to hide the, the scar. Right. Okay. okay. But the scar in the fold, in the future fold, you don't want the scar halfway up the breast mound where you, if you calculate it on the implant that you use, it's usually in the fold. And if it's four centimeters, that's. So that's a pretty good, pretty good scar. Is that hard to predict where that fold's going to be? Um, you measure it and then you, if, if you go, if you're using the native fold and the native fold can handle it, then it's straightforward. Right. It's whenever you have to lower the fold, then you have to re-secure the fold 
um, to the chest wall so that it doesn't move up and down. So probably a little bit more difficult in patients that have ultra flat chest, really tight skin to know where that's going to drop, although they're easier. They're easier. Oh, I, think, okay. I, I think those ones, are, it's the ones that already have a bit of sagginess right. and they've got a fold that you just can't get rid of. Okay. The ones that don't have a fold are great. You can just put the fold wherever you right. want. Mm. Um, I guess a couple other quick questions before we move on to the next topic um, is in terms of breastfeeding and nipple sensation, yeah. any, does it affect, yeah. does it affect those things or? Yeah. All the, all the, the best available data suggests that it doesn't affect it. Right. Now the biggest study that I always quote is on breast reduction su surgery where they looked at 150 women who had breast reduction and 150 women that didn't have breast reduction and they looked at um, whether they could breastfeed or not. And it was a very, crude study, but it's the best that we can quote. And with the breast reduction group and with the ones that didn't have breast reduction, half a third could, breast, could breastfeed, a third couldn't, and a third needed supplementation. Mm. And that's with women that have had breast reduction, as in removed breast tissue. So with breast augmentation, I say to patients, look, some women can breastfeed irrespective of what we do for you. Now, I'm not going through the nipple. I'm not I'm showing them anatomy of the breast. Mm. I'm not transecting the nipple. I'm not going anywhere near the gland and we're going below the muscle. But I don't know if you're going to be one of those patients that can't breastfeed anyway. So yeah. if it's the most critical thing in your life that you need to breastfeed, um, then wait until after. Just, just wait till after because then you – and I've had patients that had breast implant or – had three kids, first one they breastfed, second one they breastfed, third one they couldn't breastfeed, then they had their surgery. So it does vary dramatically on patient to patient. But presumably, just like you alluded to, if you need to do a breast lift and, you know, detach the nipple and move it, your chances are way higher of damaging the... the no, you, don't, you, you never detach the nipple. All you're doing is transposing the nipple to the new position based on its nerve supply, blood supply, and duct supply. So even then, such as the breast reduction patients, they can still, the people can still breastfeed. Okay. And uh, nipple sensation changes? Uh, nipple sensation, um, you don't go near the nerve, right. but I say to patients that be prepared that you might be, for breast reduction, actually more sensitive because they've had the breast that's been totic and the nerves have been stretched for so long and then you put, put them back up then they go, oh my God, I can feel my nipple again. It's super sensitive. Right. So, and with the breast augmentation patients, it's a bit of both. Sometimes they're more sensitive, sometimes less, but over time it all evens itself out. What I said to patients in terms of sensation, between your nipple and your scar, just that bottom bit, you're going to be numb for a little bit because that's the access to the dual plane. Right. Okay. And then after that, you're fine. Um, I did think of one more question on this, but did you want to move on to the well, other things? I think a lot of girls particularly maybe people who are sporty, like you alluded to, are worried about the recovery. Yeah. So let's say you go home tomorrow, you've had your implants in, everything was good. How long before you, know, you can go to the gym or do activity, stuff like that? Um, for recovery, I, I'm i a bit... Uh, I'm a bit more, not aggressive, but like I, I let them get back into things. So what I say to patients is week one and two, low-impact cardio, walking, Get on a bike at the gym, but don't use your upper body. Yes. And if you need to, do air squats and lunges, anything that doesn't activate the upper body, as long as you're wearing, excuse me, your post-operative bra. Because what happens is uh, the three things that always happen to women who are lean and fit, um, every one of them gets bloated, mm. post-breast augmentation, is the medications and all the things you're on. And they're going to stand in the mirror and go, oh my God, I'm getting fat. I need to exercise. So I say, look, go do something 
just so that it like helps your helps you emotionally yeah. that you're doing something so you don't sit at home going of all the gains that I had over the last six months I've thrown down the bin <laughs> so I said look you're going to get bloated so take uh, laxatives or prune juice or whatever gets you gets you moving the second thing is you're going to get a lot of swelling in that little in your sternum so you're going to think the breasts are really super far apart but that's the swelling so don't freak out about that and then the muscle's going to sit really high so you're going to feel they're really high so in that recovery phase, I'm happy for you to walk, air, air squats, lunges or whatever, don't activate the upper body. Then at the four-week mark, start – you'll know when you want to do upper body, okay? Your now, body you're not gonna, you. Yeah, you're not going to suddenly go do chin-ups, but <laughs> you're going to start with sensible things and it's always above the shoulder exercises that are a problem. So the analogy I use is if you've ever sprained your ankle, you limp, walk, jog, run. You don't suddenly go for a sprint. You just listen to your body and go, okay, actually, I, that doesn't feel too bad. Same with the upper body. So once once you hit that four-week mark and you're moving everything well, uh, the reason you don't want to move too much is because you want to create that pocket for that implant. Yeah. Um, so why don't you do push-ups on your knees and then push-ups, normal push-ups, and then work your way up to other things. And presumably mm. you use some stitches to put the muscle back once you've lifted it up. No, the muscle is still connected to the other attachments and to the um, – to the breast tissue so you don't stitch the muscle back, no. Okay, perfect, interesting. But the reason you want, don't want to do too much upper body is you just want that implant to secure in its pocket. So you want that, you actually want that capsule to form. Correct, yeah. Okay. Um, I was going to ask just a, a quick question in relation to um, women who are considering breast augmentation and if they think they should wait till they have kids or is it not really matter? Oh, I mean, it's uh, it's it's just whenever they want to do it. Of okay. Course, of, as with any uh, elective discretionary surgery, you want to do it when you're emotionally ready, financially ready, family ready, and you're, you know you don't want to hit a moving target. If you're planning on having a child in the next year, it'd be madness to get a breast any breast surgery because as soon as you get pregnant, the hormones come in, the breast's going to change. So right. if if you're thinking of having a child within the next two to three years, then obviously hold off. But if yeah. you're uncertain, then yeah, for sure, okay. You've probably already touched this with your um, sort of advice for recovery, but is there anything the client can also do to maximise their chances of a good result or even just prep for surgery, diet, anything like that? Yeah, what we um, what we have at our clinic, we've got a little package. We've partnered up with a um, actually an, an ex-implant uh, rep who started her own company um, and it goes through all the skincare and um, pre and post op. So every patient gets a little package, a little, um, and then it has the week before the preps, the washes, the, the creams that they use beforehand, yeah. and then um, similar products afterwards. Um, just, uh, just to help in that process of yeah. recovering. The, but the, the most important thing to do is listen to your body. Yeah. Um, and presumably the post-op bra, that's just support to, to stop the implant moving and keep them comfortable, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of patients just like, they're like, wear it to sleep because they just feel more comfortable with it until everything integrates better. Can you buy those from shops or do you have to get it from the hospital? Or? No, no, you, um, I mean, um, we, we give it to patients as part of the, the package, but then Maya, Target, David Jones, they all have post-op bras. Great. Mm. Okay. 
Um, did we want to touch on um, some of the things that have uh, hit the media in terms of the PIP and the yeah. AL? I think that'd be really good just to yeah, get yeah, cause what they are. and should, Yeah, do people really have something to be concerned about or is it scaremongering, as you sort of uh, alluded to, with some other things? Well, let's just define what they are yeah, first. Sure. Yeah, well, I guess, so I guess the PIP drama was an implant company based out in France who used non-medical grade um, silicon in their implants. Why? <laughs> Who knows? And then the cost. And no one knew. And yeah, probably cost. And then nobody knew which ones were which. So that that's what the recall happened. Recall happened. What did PIP stand for? I don't know. It's the name of the company. Like that okay. was the name of the company. Or the type of implant. The, the, the implant that it was right. some, something French. Okay. Um. And so that that, that was that. Now the ALCL, um, which is a um, anaplastic lysol lymphoma, it's a type of lymphoma that women get of of their breasts, and there's been connected to cases uh, of patients with implants. Um, I've published a case of uh, at our hospital where a patient got ALC, implant-based ALCL and she'd never had an implant. Oh. So um, it can happen without ha- implants. It happens more with implants. And over the last uh, 20 to 30 years, we're getting more and more data um, because we're looking for it more as well. Um, uh, and I think I can't be certain, but I think there's been, say, four to 500 cases worldwide that have been reported, some may be multiple multiple entries. And when they've looked at it, um, they think it's related to texturing of implants because it's way more common in textured implants rather than smooth implants. And yet not exclusive either. Uh, Not exclusive either. And then the ones that have happened with smooth may have had textured before in the past. Now, going back to the original conversation about generations of implants, the texturing was created to stop movement and to stop um, capsular contraction. so when they're where with with all this coming out and using data from other lymphomas such as gastric lymphoma which are very much related to a bacteria that in genetically susceptible women or men for gastric lymphoma can convert to a type of gastric lymphoma so using that data that's the best data we have right now that it is a bacteria that doesn't cause an infection otherwise you get an infection and go that causes um in genetically susceptible women can migrate into or can transform into uh, lymphoma. Mm. Um, when does it happen in the in all these large studies? Generally it happens at the median age is about eight years post-implantation. Mm. And the symptoms are seroma, just seroma, which is a collection of fluids. So you'll be doing nothing and suddenly your breast just swells up. And historically what pe- people used to do is just drain the seroma and it'll be fine or go away. But now we know to... Examine the Exam- Yeah, examine it specifically for ALCL. So the connection with the, those two companies, the, the polyurethane, the furry Brazilian ones, as well as another one, another implant company who had macro texturing. So the polyurethane furry Brazilian, if I had to show you, it feels like Velcro. It feels mm-hmm. like, almost like carpet. And then the other company was very thick as well. Mm-hmm. And they've been taken off some of the European countries and it made happen in Australia. And the connection that they had when they've looked at the data is that one in 3,000 using those particular implants have have formed ALCL. The other, um, the other most common implant company um, that I use, that the texturing for the teardrop is finer. Um, and the latest data is as one in 83,000 for, for those patients. So it's much less much likely. Um, and the smooth data is it's nearly zero, but nobody really knows. There has been smooth cases, as you mentioned, but they don't know if it's been related to 
having a textured beforehand. Mm, right. So am I right in saying that if this is picked up early enough, you get a seroma, your surgeon sees you, uh, you'd obviously remove the implants? Remove the implant, remove and the, the capsule. And the capsule? Yeah. And you're highly likely to have a full recovery? Yeah, ma- majority of the time, correct. Um, and then the decision you need to make is whether you want to replace those implants at the same time with a smooth smooth implant. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of patients now are worried and they like uh, they say, oh, I want my implants removed, put smooth implants in. And I suppose the, the, the take-home message is if you're worried um, and you don't have access to your surgeon, get an ultrasound. If there's no fluid, then there's no worries, right? If there is fluid, then you test the fluid. Yes. Because you could have a seroma normally. Yeah. And uh, you know what? I've had so many patients that have had seromas that – Eight years, four years, five years, and you test it, and it's totally, totally normal. Yeah. Mm. Would, so, they norm, would they normally go away on their own those seromas if you don't drain them, or they just hang? Uh, around? They do eventually, but the problem with the seroma around an implant is then it just aquaplanes, and the implant just teardrop implants would just rotate because it's it's swimming in a pool of um, fluid. I don't know if you can comment on this because everyone's got varying costs, but what's the approximate cost of a standard implant-only breast augmentation operation? Um, for the standard, uh, for me, if, if there's no other, you don't need fat grafting and everything, it's 11000 Okay. Because, you know, you know, if you just Google this stuff, there's such a wide range. You could pay twenty-five grand or six grand, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess you would agree that it, it depends on, you know, a client or a patient's going to come to you. They need to have a good bond with you. You know, you need to understand what your success rate is and, and they're going to make a decision based on multiple factors, not just price. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think price is probably, th- I guess, third on the... Well, you self-select as well because a patient that wants to play 6,000 would never get into... Wouldn't even look 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 probably, probably for me anyway. But price is an issue. Um, uh and recently, like uh, the thing is, private hospitals or day surgeries that are accredited cost anywhere between fifteen hundred and twenty two hundred dollars. The higher of the facility, yeah. The if you want to use the better implants, now implants come in different costs. For example, a smooth round implant pair a pair costs eight hundred bucks, yeah. seven hundred bucks even. But if you want to get a teardrop textured, costs almost two thousand dollars. Yeah. So the price can vary between whether you use a smooth round. Which has a different gel and or a teardrop textured, yeah. Um, or there's a new company that's come out that's tried to kind of mix mix both of them up. So, uh, and then whether you now you have to use an anesthetist. Sometimes people didn't use an anesthetist, so that's another thousand dollars. I have an assistant, you know. We provide a bra. So there's other yeah. other things that that cost. Yeah, it's good for patients to understand there are hidden or not hidden costs, but multiple levels to why that cost is what it is. Correct. Um, and then I guess we've seen the um, cosmetic tourism yeah. side of things be an option that people look at, whether it be for breasts or teeth or yeah. they're running off to all sorts of various parts of the world to get these things done cheaper. Do you find, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? And do you deal with many of those cases that go wrong when it does go wrong? The, the, the reality is that, um, as I said at the start, these operations have a 100% revision rate, right? My, my thoughts are that you just need to have access to your surgeon when and if that happens. Um, and if you decide to, you know, I have patients that travel from Melbourne, Queensland, Northern Territory, New Zealand to come and see me. I had a patient yeah. from Singapore the other day. Technically, I'm partaking in cosmetic tourism because yeah. they're not local 
people. So um, it's funny. I guess you're happy when people cosmetic tourism to you, but you're not happy when they <laughs> – so a lot of it is a finite, like a – turf war as well you got to understand that but i think it, if it comes down to patient safety you just want to have access to your surgeon if and potentially long term when something goes yeah. what goes wrong now teeth whitening breast augmentation majority of the time that's straightforward but i wouldn't go have a facelift a rhinoplasty or a mummy makeover overseas because yeah. there's so many more moving parts but if yeah. you if you're 21 flat chested and you put an implant in it's probably not as complicated. Um, mm. You probably don't need it. I shouldn't say it, but you probably don't need to see an expensive Sydney surgeon for that yeah. if you can't afford it. Yeah. Sure. Um, something else I just wanted to touch on quickly, and I don't think we wrote the question on this. So um, in terms of complications and there seems to be, you know, with things like real self and cosmetic yeah. journey, people, as soon as they're not happy, will just go online and they'll just destroy yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> their surgeon or whoever it is. Um, and there seems to, I think, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's important that the surgeon that you see, that you build that relationship, that you trust them, him or her, um, so that if something does go wrong, you've got that capacity and that relationship to go back and actually work on making it right or, or dealing with it together rather than it becoming a combative yeah. type situation. And do you think, I mean, how do you feel about that? And do you do you, do you experience much of that or how do you combat oh, you it? I experience it all the time. Yeah, right. you experience it all the time. And just recently I've, I've had an example. But then I guess you have to think of it when you start, whenever you have a problem, you go, okay, which is best for the patient? So at least these forums give patients a voice that they otherwise would never have had. Yeah. And then with that voice, then historically, if there was no voice, no Google reviews, nothing, a surgeon could have said to the patient, piss off. I told you there'd be risks. Yeah. Not my problem, right? Yeah. So now we are held accountable more, which is very good because then the patient won't feel like they're lost in, in the hinterland. So I guess it has to come down to um, luck, you know, if you have a complication, the patient, and you have to treat the patient rightly. So mm. I had a patient who um, I, I didn't want to do a tummy, but she had a big tummy, um, divarication, big hernia essentially. And she was bigger around a patient and she's not wasn't a candidate for tummy tuck. I said, but you've I'm not doing a tummy tuck. Let's repair this hernia. She had an amazing result. Yeah. And a year later I saw a Google review where she just roasted me. And I was yeah. like and then she made up story that I did a tummy tuck on her, which the consent said wasn't a tummy tuck and that other surgeon mm. that made all these recommendations and and you kind of hurt and you go, yeah. okay, so the ones that are angry, you're angry, you, you know, you do everything. But the ones that you, I, I didn't even see it. I was like, yeah. I looked at her photos. Her photos are on my gallery as one of the good results. Yeah. So, um, and then you can't do anything about it. You, yeah. really, you, you, you can't do about it. You can, I've heard of surgeons suing patients, but then if you're going down that path, it's just not, it's yeah. not worth it. So I just think you just, if a patient has a suboptimal outcome, then you listen to them and you do everything in your powers to make them happy because yeah. you want them to be happy. It's still yeah. medicine. It's yeah. still medicine, yeah. I mean, you, you've had this happen with you, Jack. I mean, um, there's not supposed to be a joke about you getting perfect results all the time or patients being happy. I mean, it's just the reality of we are in a little bit of a complaint-driven society and yeah. um, dealing with that is a, real, is a real challenge for everyone involved in this industry, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'd agree you're a surgeon. Yeah. I'm, I'm a sort of non-surgical doctor now, but 
it's the consent process and the build up to the treatment that yeah. is the most important thing. If you establish, you know, the the spectrum of good and bad, yeah. you'll fall somewhere in the middle of there. If you accept that, even though your your risk of bad things is low, then cool, let's we, we can proceed on a journey together. It's when those patients, for whatever reason, the patient sort of after the treatment has decided that doesn't sit with them, it becomes difficult. Yeah, I, I spend more. It, I spend more time in my consultation talking about risks and complications. So, breast augmentation uh, cons- uh, uh, consultation takes thirty minutes. I could pick an implant in one minute for the patient. <laughs> Literally one minute. If it was that easy, yep, this is the implant. Then you spend the next twenty nine minutes going through risks and. Mm writing down the risk. The, the problem is we write through risk, we sign it, they keep a copy and I keep a copy. But all that means nothing when they don't get the result that they want. So you yeah. could, so the, the, the example that causes us the most revision rates is breast lift and implant because it is a complicated operation. And I say to patients, uh, some surgeons do a lift first and do the implant later. So that's a 100% chance of two operations. I think you could do it in one. And I saw a patient just yesterday. I said, look, you are so high risk of a revision. I think your revision rate, when if I do it as a one stage, is anywhere between 50 and 70%. Mm. Like I, you've just got that breast shape and no matter, and we've consented, I've <laughs> written 50 to 70 and we're going to go ahead and do the breast lifting plan and she's aware this is the cost when we do the revision. I never charge my fee, but I can't control hospital anesthetist. Mm. Um, but then when it does happen, it's like, well, why did I get such a crappy result? I think people always think that won't happen to them yeah. for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know why that is a sort of a human. Yeah. I think as well, people, when they come, they obviously people don't decide to have a breast augmentation overnight. It's something they've thought about, yeah. they've dreamt about, they've visualised themselves with this result. They come and see you, they're all excited. They're looking at the implants. Yeah. It's like almost like they're signing it, but they're actually not there. Yeah, they're already right. envisaging having these perfect breasts and they haven't absorbed the information that you've been trying to convey to them. So it's almost like you didn't have that conversation. Yeah, correct. And I think maybe the future of medical consultation will be video recorded consultations and they yeah, keep a copy I of it. I agree. That would be a step forward for both for the, both, yeah, the doctor for, and, the, and the patient. Yeah. Because if a doctor has excluded something inadvertently, then exactly. that's for the patient to, mm. to take on board. Um, so for all of you that have loved the Dr. Marathi or Ziggy podcast, you're going to be back to come and talk to us um, at some stage in the next month or so about uh, reconstruction and perhaps we'll cover lifts as well. Yep. Um, so thank you. Thank I, you very much. I guess just to wrap fun. things up, what advice would you give to people that are uh, seeking out just a, a regular breast augmentation? Like what, 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 how, how should they proceed and what advice would you give them? Um, I guess my advice to them was know exactly what look you're after um, and whether that's going to be realistic for you because then the consultation becomes straightforward. Even if you've got unrealistic goals, like if you say not unrealistic goals, even if you want a look that is a fake look, that's fine, but it has to be realistic on, on your particular um, body type. Um, and then so once you've got that image in your mind, it's so much easier to relay that to your surgeon and say, say to him or her, this is what I'm after. Do you think it's achievable? Because that lets your surgeon know what you're, what you're after. But if the surgeon doesn't know what you want, then he or she can never guess what you, you're going to like. Yeah. yeah. It's not telepathy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how could people contact you and, and where are you and what's your website? Um, so it's just drmorady.com.au. So D-R-M-O-R-A-D-I.com.au. Um, based in Sydney. 
Great. Um, do you use social media, Instagram? Uh, uh, yeah, my, the Insta, my Insta page is drmirati.com.au as well. I've got to practice one with my business partner, it's Park Clinic. Okay. Um, but most of it goes through Dr. Mirati. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. We appreciate Thanks, you guys. coming. No, it's good fun. We'll, we'll see you soon. See you. Thank you. Take care.